Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, we come before you with a spirit of gratitude this evening for all the ways you've blessed us today, especially those that went unnoticed. And we pray, Lord, in thanksgiving, for the anticipation of the ways that you are going to bless us through your word tonight. As we open these pages of sacred scripture, we ask that you help our hearts and minds be focused and attentive, remove any distractions, worries, or anxieties that may be obstacles for us to hear your voice, and help us to be ready to receive whatever you have in store for each one of us. You knew we would each be here tonight, and you have a specific word, a specific message for each one of us, and so we pray that we would have hearts that are ready to be open and to receive whatever that is. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that you bless it, bless us each in the ways we most need it, and guide this time as we place it all in your hands. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome. Welcome back. We are in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, and we pick up right where we left off from last week. So, in the gospel of Mark last week, we had the call of the first disciples, Mark's account of Jesus calling uh, Andrew and Simon Peter and James and John at the Sea of Galilee, nearby where they fished and where they lived, and now they're going to a nearby town of Capernaum, which became Jesus' hometown and home base during his three public years of ministry as an adult uh, and traveling rabbi. So Capernaum is a place where uh, he frequents a lot, and this is kind of his first uh, encounter there in the Gospel of Mark, and a pretty eventful one at that in the synagogue. So it's, this is happening immediately after the events of last week, the call of the first disciples. This is the first thing in Jesus's public ministry that Mark wants you to know about. So pay attention to what that means about kind of the frame that, or the, the perspective through which we're going to see uh, who Jesus is through the whole rest of this gospel. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. We're going to read this twice through. First time, just get a picture for what is, is happening in this scene. Then they came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him and with a loud cry came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. His fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we have a picture for the scene here, this cure of a demoniac in the synagogue on the Sabbath, I now invite you to listen more uh, intently to the words as they are proclaimed. As you hear these words, just kind of focus and see, is there any particular word or phrase that strikes you? Okay, this is no longer to interpret what's going on in the passage. This is to see what is speaking to you directly. Does something just inspire a thought, a memory, connects with you in some way? Reflect on those things that stand out, just seemingly out of nowhere, and just ask, Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this detail or this word? How is this speaking directly to you? 
Okay, so second and final time through Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Then they came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him and said, Quiet, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed him and with a loud cry came out of him. All were amazed and asked one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. His fame spread everywhere throughout the whole region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look back over that passage and the things that stood out to you. Uh, and if you're watching this or listening to this later, let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, uh, if you want to gather in uh, some of the smaller tables, want to group with some other people, we're going to share uh, what stood out to you and why and any questions you have about this passage. So feel free, if you want to, to join the larger table and do that. We're going to take about the next 10 or 15 minutes to discuss, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and some Q&A. Go ahead. So, a few things, uh, as always, to put this into context. Uh, and first and foremost is Jesus here, he is speaking in the synagogue. And it was very common at this time that synagogues were run by kind of presidents or officials that didn't have any teaching role. Their job was basically to schedule or invite rabbis or itinerant preachers to come and to speak on the existing Torah and to build off the existing authorities and interpretations of the Torah that had come before. So it's very common for someone, uh, someone like Paul in the New Testament or Jesus during his ministry to show up at a synagogue and for people to say, oh, will you please read from this scroll and, and teach us? But that was because the system that they had at the time was whatever you taught had to be based on the authority of someone that taught before you. And this is very much how uh, Jewish scriptures are written um, things like uh, the, the uh, oh, what is it called, the Mishnah, uh, which are commentaries on the Torah and the Talmud and all of the, the other writings in, in Judaism. If you ever get a copy of one, you'll see that like you'll have the text in the middle, and then it will say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this about this. And it just kind of circles around the page of all of these kind of rabbinical commentaries that echoed through generations about how the rabbinical tradition interpreted this particular passage. And so if you as a rabbi were going to teach publicly, you had to, you had to appeal to the authority of the rabbi who taught you and the rabbis who taught him. And a lot of those rabbis who were great teachers were, were well known. Okay, so at the time of Jesus, there were two predominant schools. Uh, one was named for a previous rabbi named Rabbi Shammai, and the other was named for a previous rabbi named Rabbi Hillel. And so often there were these two schools of Torah interpretation. One was a little more conservative. One was a little more loose. Jesus obviously fits into neither of those. Um, he does things that are a little more Hillel, a little more Shammai at different times. Uh, but that was the two main schools of thought. And so as you would teach, you would say, as Rabbi Shammai said, and then you would go forth, and then you might elaborate on it a little bit. So it's clear here that Jesus does not do that, because it says that he's speaking as one who has authority, not like one of the scribes. The scribes and different scholars at this time, their job was to interpret and teach the Torah and make certain binding judgments based on their interpretation. Okay, so they were very concerned with the day-to-day -day life of what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be part of the chosen people of Israel, and how we are meant to follow God's law today. And so there wasn't really like a 5,000 foot view, like what does this all mean? It was like, how do we do this now? And if a question came up, the scribes and the scholars would study the Torah and they would produce some kind of binding judgment that everyone then had to follow. Appealing back to the authority, all the way back to the teachings and the laws of Moses. Um, and so Jesus here is not doing that. It doesn't say what he taught, but it says that he taught in such a way that he didn't have to appeal to anyone else. And what he taught 
obviously didn't sound like what anyone else taught. Otherwise, they would say, oh, this sounds like Rabbi Gamaliel, or this sounds like Rabbi Shammai, or Rabbi Hillel. They don't say that. Jesus is saying something new, something different than the very day-to-day -day obsessed kind of teaching style of the scribes and the scholars. Scribes and the scholars, ironically, are the group that makes up a large number of the Sanhedrin, which are the uh, kind of judicial body of the Jewish governing structure, who are the ones who condemn Jesus and have him crucified. They also uh, have honored seats in the synagogue, right up front behind the teaching platform. So if you're looking at the teacher, you can see them in the background. When they enter, you're supposed to call them rabbi, you rise. They were considered very highly esteemed individuals just because of their office. And they built on this authority of other highly esteemed and respected individuals before them. Jesus seems to have no concern with that whatsoever. He comes in and he appeals to the existing teaching structure, but he teaches something new, teaching something with authority. And it's just, it's so interesting that Mark records that this happens, and then these, this event takes place after this, but has no record of what Jesus taught. Only the effect it had on people. You've heard that phrase, uh, people don't really care what you say, but they'll remember how you made them feel. They won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. It's clear that this is kind of how Jesus spoke. That doesn't mean what he said didn't have significance. It doesn't mean we don't need to remember the teachings. But for Mark's purposes, when he's investigating these eyewitness accounts, these people don't necessarily need to recall exactly what Jesus taught, only that he had this authority and this energy about him. And the person before this in the Old Testament tradition who had this kind of independent authority straight from God was Moses. And Moses, after giving all of the law, the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, to all of the people, he says in the last book of the Torah, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse 15, he says, A prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you among your own kindred. That is the one to whom you shall listen. And that for a long time was considered a prophecy of one who would come in the future, a Messiah figure in the person of Moses to bring a new law and to deliver the Hebrew people from a different kind of slavery or oppression, just like Moses delivered the Hebrew slaves from oppression in Egypt. So they're anticipating this Moses-like figure to come, and then they have someone who speaks with authority like Moses did. And so it's no wonder they were kind of enraptured by this and so dissatisfied with the kind of authority structures that were around because all they cared about was, well, did you eat kosher today? And what does it mean that it's the Sabbath? Okay, you, you cannot walk more than, this is a real law on the Sabbath. You had to measure out 2,000 feet from your home in a square. And you could not travel further than that on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk further than 2,000 feet away from your home on the Sabbath. Those scrupulous type of regulations and laws, those are the things that the scribes and the scholars were obsessed with. Jesus comes and he teaches with a new authority. He comes to proclaim a kingdom, to say that something new is happening. God is coming to establish his reign, not make sure you don't do this or that on the Sabbath. It's not that those rules aren't important. It's not that the law isn't important. It's that you have to have the right perspective and way to interpret the law. Okay, so that's the authority. Now, Jesus here in this next part, he drives out a demon. Okay, it's kind of a ministry of exorcism. There's only one instance in the Old Testament that I'm aware of where there is some sort of mention of an exorcism, or at least driving away an evil spirit. And it's in 1 Samuel 16, and it is David. And it is not David exercising any type of ministry. It talks about the fact that King Saul, when he was king, was afflicted by these evil or, uh, or uh, malevolent spirits. And anytime David would come and play music for him, it would drive the evil spirits away. So again, one like Moses and then one like King David, who had the authority or at least the presence of God within him to drive away these kind of evil presences from another, both manifesting in the person of Jesus in this moment. And those two figures, very highly esteemed and respected and very much associated with the Messiah in the eyes of the Jewish people. So if you see someone who is exercising teaching authority like Moses, exercising authority over unclean spirits like David, in front of you in the synagogue, you're going to be thinking, as a Jewish person, this is probably the Messiah. Lastly, um, 
there's uh, something to be said about the Jewish culture of names. And if you've heard me speak about this before, forgive me, but it's worth repeating. Uh, in Jewish culture at this time, uh, your name carried a lot of significance, okay? Your name was considered your essence, your identity. Only God had the authority to change your name. And we see that happen in Scripture where he changes Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. Even though they're very similar, the meaning slightly changes. So Abram means father of many. Abraham means father of a great many. He extends his covenant even though they were without children and barren, he promises them that they will have children and then from them come the 12 tribes of Israel and this entire Hebrew covenant. And so he changes their names. Um, Simon, his name being changed to Peter, shows that Jesus has the authority of God to be able to do that. Okay, Because your name embodied who you were. There weren't like a, you know, at this time, a registry of like, what are the hundred most popular baby names in first century Israel? You know, um, it was you named your child kind of what you felt. And so in the Old Testament, you'll see they named him Judah because God was praised. And that's what Judah means. It wasn't because their father's name was Judah or Judah was a popular name. It was because this is how I feel. Here's the word we have for this. I guess that's your name now. It would be the equivalent of me saying like, oh, we had this child while I was sitting in a chair. And that was a really comfortable chair. So I will name them chair. Like that's how names originated in Hebrew culture. And it had something to do with like the spirit of how you felt at that time or the mood or the circumstances surrounding your birth. And that embodied kind of who you were. And so your name meaning had significance. Your name also carries with it a sense of authority. That if I call you across the room and I shout out your name and I say, Jessica, you know, or something, you turn to me then I have captured your, your, your kind of attention. I've exerted some kind of command or influence over you. So at this time, a lot of people had multiple names. They had a private name that only their family knew, and they had a public name. So it can be very frustrating when you read scripture sometimes, and you're looking maybe at the names of the 12 apostles, and you have Bartholomew, who's sometimes called Nathaniel. You have Matthew, who's sometimes called Levi. You have Jude, who's sometimes called Thaddeus. You have Thomas, who's sometimes called Didymus, and they all have at least two names. And some of this was due to the fact that there were multiple languages. So Paul, his name never changes. His name is Saul, but he starts going by the Greek version of his name, which is Paul. And so you have all these different things at play. Public names, private names, different language translations of your name. Peter is called Simon, Peter, Kephas, Cephas, all in the New Testament. And so all of that is to show the importance and the significance of names, that their meaning has significance, and that if you know someone's true name or identity, there was a belief in Hebrew culture that you could command authoritatively their spirit in some way. You had influence over them. So when this demon says, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. This unclean spirit is trying to exert influence over Jesus. And it's a piece of evidence to Jesus' divine power that he is completely unaffected by this. He basically says, you have no authority here. Come out of him. And who is it that then exerts authority over who? It's Jesus who commands authority over the evil spirit. There's a really beautiful passage in the Catechism, paragraph 2,666, about the name of Jesus. And I'll read you uh, some excerpts from it. It says, the one name that contains everything is the one that the Son of God received in his incarnation, Jesus. The name Jesus contains all, God and man and the whole economy of creation and salvation. To pray Jesus is to invoke him and to call him within us. His name is the only one that contains the presence it signifies. So when you say the name of Jesus, when you pray the name of Jesus, when you command something in the name of Jesus, Jesus' presence is literally there with you. That's the power of the name of Jesus. And that extends from the belief of the Hebrew culture and system at this time of what it meant to have authority over someone by knowing their name, their true name. Because then you would know their true nature. So all that being said, um, I think I'll leave some of this other stuff until the end. So um, that gives you a little bit of context about how this would have struck them and why certain things are important in this passage. What things stood out to you? What do you think was important to you? And what questions do you have about this reading? Yeah, Jasper. So it says uh, 
that the angel Gabriel told Mary to name Jesus Emmanuel. Yes. Right. So was that his his secret name, or what's going on there? Yeah. Did we ever see him called Emmanuel? Um, we well I, again, that's one of potentially a title, because he's also called the Holy One of God. He's called that again. He's called that here. He's called that again in John chapter six after the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, are you going to leave too? Simon Peter says, to who else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. And so he has certain titles, certain names that are associated with him. Emmanuel could have been his private name. It could have been a public title, a declaration that God is indeed with us. Um, Yeshua, Jesus, uh, means God saves or Yahweh saves. So it's also an action of who God is and what he's doing in the person of Jesus that he's coming to save us. So both of them can be his name, and that would not have been at all unusual at this time. So, But it's clear that he is mostly known by Jesus. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. So I think it's really interesting that in the beginning, we talked about how Jesus challenged the scribes, mm -hmm. um, you know, going up against them and things like that. So it just it just takes me to um, the current day with you know political climate and things like that. I sure. feel like so many of us are reluctant to um, try something new, um, mm -hmm. probably because we become so used to the status quo. And it might even be something that's better for us. Mm -hmm. but I think that we all get, we tend to get caught up in the, in the things that just are comfortable. Sure. Um, as opposed to listening to the words of Jesus, which are significantly different from the laws and things that they had in place at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's just a, it's not necessarily a question. It's just a, a fact that. I think historically that's just always been something, and it's a great it's a great message from Jesus that, mm -hmm. that be open to change and, and something that's new and, and maybe different than what you're used to. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to to take the fact that there was very much a bipartisan type of relationship to the faith at this time and use that to kind of interpret how do we approach that reality in our country today. Jesus doesn't conform to either; he proclaims the truth. And then for us, that's always our role, is to seek and proclaim the truth. And there is no political party has any dominant claim on the truth. What's true is true no matter who says it. And if you rewind 50 to 60 years ago, both parties were saying the opposite things that they do now. And then the other one started to change, and then they were like, well, we don't like them, so we'll say the opposite of what they say. And then they flip-flopped. You know? So it's very hard, it's very frustrating to track that historically. Um, and it's important to not get caught up in that and to recognize, like, we just need to pursue what is true. What is true? How do we seek to do the, the most good and proclaim the most truth as possible? And remember that no political candidate is our savior because we already have one named Jesus. And a lot of times in political seasons, we treat political candidates like they are our saviors and that they can do no wrong, that they are perfect, and that we have to conform to this way or that way, or it's like, you know, or hell or condemnation. And so that, you know, politics is not the church. And when you start bringing churchy language into politics, you're doing something very dangerous. You're creating an idol of your party or your candidate. And that is something that is, is preached against wholeheartedly in scripture. So we, we, the catechism commands us as Catholics to have an active role. We should be active participants in, uh, in the political structures and in society and seeking to proclaim the truth and put forward the values and the ethics that God has instilled in us in the ways we vote and in the ways that we're involved in the community. Um, but we cannot expect that from the structures that are here because we've already been given the fullness of the truth by God. So it's a very important thing to realize and to, to always be bringing to the fold whenever we're talking about politics or when these things come up. Yeah. Yes? We were talking about this. Uh, I have a question on it. But what is the significance of Mark's emphasis on demons and exorcisms? Yeah. And, and because, you know, they're in the other ones, but Matthew is, is totally different. Mm -hmm. And um, this particular passage is the person seems to be just a mere vessel. He isn't talking at all. He just happens to be with an unclean spirit. Mm -hmm. And since the Jews didn't think that almost anybody, like lepers or somebody like that, who didn't, you know, do the law, 
exactly right that they were unclean. Mm -hmm. This seems to be much bigger than somebody who had a mental illness. Sure. So what's, what is Mark's significance of the, this demonic possession that they're casting them out? Because it's emphasized a lot. And what does that mean for us now? Yeah. Well, okay, there's a lot there. So first of all, why is this emphasized in the Gospel of Mark? And then uh, emphasis on the unclean spirit and what that kind of means. And, and I'll, maybe I'll touch on a few other things that you said. But um, so in the Gospel of Mark, Mark is very action-packed. It's very focused on the healing power of Jesus and most especially Jesus's divine power over evil. And so that's why the symbol for the Gospel of Mark is the lion, that Jesus is the lion of Judah. And think about the tenacity and the power of a lion to devour, to consume its prey, king of the jungle. Like Jesus embodies that in the way he's depicted in Mark, that he is going to go hunt down evil and get rid of it. And so we have, I think there's four maybe exorcisms or interactions with Jesus and unclean spirits in the Gospel of Mark. There's this one. There's one in chapter 5. One in chapter 7, which is the Syrophoenician woman. And 5 is the, the Gerasene demoniac. And in chapter 9 is a boy who's afflicted with a mute and, mute and deaf spirit who the disciples of Jesus cannot drive out and that they come to him and says, some demons can only be driven out through prayer, if you remember that story. And so there's a clear emphasis on you know, almost every other chapter for the beginning part of this whole public ministry where Jesus has some encounter with the enemy, with the evil one or his minions and seeks to show his dominion and authority over them. And so that's very much what Mark wants you to know. He calls his first disciples, boom, exorcism, right at the beginning, chapter one, not even halfway through, exorcism. Jesus is powerful and has the power to deliver us from sin, death, and evil. That's what Mark wants. He wants us to understand it. This is the first gospel written chronologically. It was the, it's the, the earliest one. And so people who were hearing about the good news, Mark wanted to present to them the, the best news. And you cannot present the good news if you don't tell the bad news first. If you don't tell people how bad the bad news is, that there is an evil one, that he is afflicting you and seeking to destroy you, and that this life will lead you down a path of destruction if you don't know the Lord. If you don't tell people the bad news, they can't understand how good the good news is. And that's exactly what Mark does. He calls the disciples and then boom, here's some bad news, but look how good the good news is. And he repeats that mantra over and over again, or that pattern, to show the significance of that. So I think that's why Mark does it, to show like very quickly Jesus is the Messiah. He embodies all these prophecies and promises of these Old Testament figures that we're waiting for, that people seek after, see as positions of authority. But he also is divine. He has divine power and authority over even other supernatural beings like demons and, and, uh, and the devil. Um, and then what, what here is kind of the significance of the unclean spirit? Uh, it's not mentioned that this is a demon. The title says it's demoniac, but the title was not there in the original, uh, in the original Greek. We added these titles, so the church added these titles later. Um, and so unclean spirit and demoniac are used interchangeably. In fact, in one of those uh, demonic possession stories, I think it's the one in Mark chapter 7, uh, when the Syrophoenician woman is asking Jesus to heal her daughter, um, it says... Start in Mark 7, somewhere around 24. Um, he soon entered the house, uh, no, verse 25. Soon a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. She came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to drive the demon out of her daughter. So those two terms are used interchangeably. Anytime unclean spirit is used, you can use this as a, as a biblical precedent to show they mean the same thing. Okay, there's a demon involved. But I, it's interesting that you pointed out the language that's used here, that it's kind of this passive language. There is a difference between being unclean in the Hebrew sense and having an unclean spirit. Being unclean is a ritual designation about you have touched something that has to do with the fact that um, life has been lost or that you are not purified in such a way to, become, to come to the temple to present yourself for worship. They saw kind of, imagine like, I don't know if you've ever played a, like a video game or a computer game where someone has like a health meter. Okay, you can imagine that like at this time they saw kind of like a holiness or a purity meter. And if you interact with anything that is not holy or pure, it kind of goes, mm, and it goes down and you lose some of that spiritual health. In order to become worthy to go to the temple for sacrifice or worship, you need to do ritual purification or sacrifice to get that back up so that then you can present yourself for worship or enter the synagogue or things like that. Okay, so it was kind of a cure to a draining effect 
you know, of just a reality that you had done something that made you ritually unclean or impure. But to have an unclean spirit means that there is something that was unclean outside of you that came within you and is dwelling there. L listen to the language here. Okay, In their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, what have you to do with us? Okay, So there's an individual, but there's a plurality here. There's him and this unclean spirit. It's not something that this man did. It's not a ritual designation of his uncleanness or impurity. He has been possessed or taken over by this unclean spirit. He cried out, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Not we know who you are. I know who you are. So a lot of biblical scholars use this kind of back and forth of I and we to kind of uh, interpret this to say that, how do I put this? So um, let's talk about demons. So um, there are different levels of demonic involvement and activity in a person's life. And um, the very, very highest of which, anyone know? Not possession. Most people think it's possession. When a, someone is possessed by an evil spirit or a demon, that evil spirit cannot possess a person's soul because your soul belongs to God. So they dwell within your body and there's this kind of tension that exists. You're aware of the fact that you're possessed usually, but the, the demon can overtake your faculties and use your body uh, unwillingly. You, you're not willing for that to happen. There is something called integration where someone willingly gives themselves over to demonic possession to take them over. And at that point, there is a sense where the two, the being and the evil spirit are in one sense fused and become like they are one. So the we is now just I. This is who I am. And there's some kind of biblical evidence that maybe this is what was happening, that this person had kind of given up hope and given themselves over to the fact that they're what, they were not just possessed by an unclean spirit, they were now taking on the qualities and the characters and kind of giving themselves over to the unclean spirit. That's how far gone this person maybe could have been. Um, and so there's a difference between being ritually unclean. It's clear that this was a demon. This is an, uh, an element of demonic possession, something that still happens in the church. And the church has uh, prolific ministries to help prevent or to root out when it does happen, uh, which we can talk about if you're curious. But um, I think that answers both your questions and all the things at least that stood out to me from what you said. So, yes. Other questions? Comments? Yes. Um, speaking in tongues. Yes. And maybe something that you've covered in the past, so I apologize. But um, did people interpret that as someone being possessed? Um, and, and the other thing is, is speaking in tongues mentioned in the Bible? It is mentioned in the Bible numerous times. It's one of the gifts of the Spirit or the supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is one of the main places where a lot of the spiritual gifts are mentioned. Um, and it is a gift of the Holy Spirit, so it's a good thing. Um, but the gift of tongues kind of has three different facets. So there is um, public uh, proclamation of tongues um, and private proclamation of tongues. And then there is speaking different languages. Now, tongues is not necessarily meaning that you're speaking a different language. It's almost as if you are speaking a language that is nonsensical or known only to God. I kind of, the equivalent of it is like if you get, you're so enveloped by being a child of God and so in union with God that you get like the spiritual goo goo gagas. That you're like so just in a, 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 a place of complete like just fulfillment in the Lord that you just like, all you can do is just like, like that's just like you just want the Lord and you just cannot even, and you don't even need to bother to put it to words because your body can just express how you feel in those kind of chatterings or um, kind of nonsensical syllables. Um, and so there's that that happens privately for your own edification and prayer. Public tongues that's mentioned in the scriptures is always for the benefit of the assembly. And whenever public tongues are proclaimed, there is always, scripture says, someone who has the gift to interpret those tongues, to translate for the rest of us what is happening in this moment? What is God trying to proclaim to this person who is unable to articulate it, but is so connected to the Lord that they have this message that they maybe cannot put to words? And so there's a lot of warnings in Scripture about the use of tongues. 
And that like, like I think Paul even, he essentially says, I'm radically paraphrasing here, but he essentially says like, if there's a bunch of people like speaking in tongues, like shut up, like it's one person, they're speaking, someone is there to interpret. And if you're not doing that, then you're just like, you're just chattering away and like, it doesn't mean anything. It's for your own edification, not for the Lord's. That's not the right way to do it. Um, but tongues can then also apply to having the gift of speaking a language that you do not already know. And so sometimes people are given this ability when they're ministering in foreign countries, when they're uh, trying to minister to a person that they've just met, they don't speak the language and all of a sudden these words just come or this person is speaking to them and they just understand. There is a slight similarity in that regard to a quality that can happen when a person is especially possessed that they can develop the knowledge of languages, namely Latin, um, and speak in response to the Latin prayers and rites of exorcism that priests will be saying over that person. And so a person who has no previous experience in that language, or very ancient biblical languages like Greek and Aramaic as well might come up, or Hebrew, um, but Latin in particular can also manifest for that reason. But there, it's not to be confused with the gift or the charism of speaking in tongues, even though there is that kind of slight similarity in that regard. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Great question. Yeah, Rick. Can someone be possessed through no fault of their own? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. People, uh, there's so much. Um, I would say we ha we have an increasing secular Satanism and public paganism that we are susceptible to. I mean, just look at like there was a, a, a moment there on Netflix where there was like three shows that all had like grossly demonic and satanic themes that were the most popular shows. It was like Riverdale, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, some other show, uh, all had these like intensely satanic images. Uh, in fact, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the new remake of it, um, they have a consult uh, on the show from I think the Church of Satan or and or a Catholic priest to accurately depict the theology and the spirituality surrounding the effect that Satan has on people. And so it's very dangerous to expose yourself to these things because in a sense you're opening doors of interest and curiosity to things that we should not be opening doors to. And so that's why the church is very much against things associated with the occult. Okay, So things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, consulting mediums, even consulting horoscopes. Uh, using New Age spirituality, crystals. And the reason for that is not because the church is saying, like, you can't believe anything else but what we say. No. It's because the church knows through the experience of generations and how people have been afflicted by these things that when you use... I used to, I used to uh, do tarot readings for people when I was much younger, before I was in the church. And there is this sense that there is a spirit of the cards. And when you are using tarot cards, you give them to the other person to touch so that their spirit will be open to and kind of fused with the cards to give an accurate reading. And so when you're opening your spirit or attaching your spirit to something, and then you're just opening it up to the big wild spiritual world out there, you unknowingly, maybe ignorantly, through no uh, conscious or rational fault of your own, because maybe you're unaware of the threat, open yourself up to any influence. In the spiritual life, especially in the Catholic tradition, anytime we open ourselves up to the Lord, it's very specific. And we have very specific prayers of deliverance and exorcism and protection to make sure that we're not opening that door to any being that could be out there. Because the devil and his demons are looking for any opportunity to infiltrate. And they are radically present in a lot of the, the media and the things that are readily available for us to consume. And that shouldn't provoke us to a sense of fear. Like, God is far stronger than the devil and all of his demons combined. He created them. They rebelled from him, which is why they're demons. Uh, but he has far greater power and authority. So we shouldn't fear. But we should be cautious and protect ourselves against the ways that we can expose ourselves to accidentally opening ourselves to these things. Um, there's, uh, I think there's a famous account of an exorcism or maybe, just, maybe it's just a documented uh, case of demonic involvement where there was a child playing with a Ouija board um, and then went to his mom and said, Mom, who's Beelzebub? And started saying all these demon names and things like that. Just a small child, had no, no idea through, fault of their own, through no fault of their own. A while back there was that game Charlie Charlie. That was a TikTok trend. Maybe you remember this or heard of that. But it was basically like an invitation to incite the influence or the response from demons or evil spirits or anything out there. That's why the church deems these things as dangerous. We're not trying to be prudish and say, like, don't expose yourself to anything but Catholicism because that's we just want to confine you to this. It's like, no, we're saying, like, we want to protect you like any parent wants to protect their children. Don't go out in the street on your own. Like, there's dangers that you may be unaware of. And so protect yourself from the fact that 
as scripture says, the devil is like a prowling lion looking for something to devour. That the devil knows he's fighting a losing battle and he just wants to bring as many of us down with him as possible. That's how completely opposed he is to God's will and how proud he is in wanting to destroy something he knows he cannot destroy. And so the best he can do is turn as many of us astray as possible and use whatever influences are out there to find a way in. And so that's why it's so important to have the sacraments, use sacramentals, pray these prayers of protection like the St. Michael prayer, deliverance prayers, ask for the invocation and prayers and intercession of your guardian angels and patron saints. All of those things cover you with this protection. And namely, having a relationship with Mary and Joseph. One of the, uh, I think Joseph and, and or Mary's nicknames is terror of demons. Demons hate Mary. All exorcists say that the person that demons hate the most is Mary. Because Jesus is God. Like, it's like, okay, you can be mad at Jesus, but he's God. But Mary was a human and she was perfectly conformed to God. Absolutely no doors open, no ability to be swayed by the enemy. And so most exorcists report that like when these different conversations come out in their exorcisms when they're conversing with these demons, that is something that is, is shared among many of them, how much they hate Mary. So we have, we are equipped with many, many tools in our wheelhouse as Catholics to defend us and protect us from these things, but it is out there and they can infiltrate in ways that you don't realize. There's a great ministry called Unbound. Um, and I think San Francisco Solano did a, a, an Unbound series a, a few years ago, but it's a ministry that you can go through to assess kind of the different influences and possibilities that you may be opening yourself up to in this. I will tell you some of it I think might be a little extreme. Okay, Some of it is like, have you watched Harry Potter? It's like, okay, no. Like, there's magic in Harry Potter, like there's magic in Lord of the Rings, and nobody's saying anything about Lord of the Rings. So like, but it, it can be a little extreme, but it always is assessing like, what is your spirit about it? How much are you investing in this? How much do you think this is real? How much of yourself are you giving over to it and opening yourself up to influences that you do not understand? So it's a good ministry. Um, I think that's what it's called is Unbound, um, Catholic ministry about like spiritual warfare and deliverance and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yes. You said there's different levels of possession, like possession, mm -hmm. integration. Is there others? Yes. So those are different levels of demonic activity. Um, so there are many others. Um, the first level of demonic activity we all experience. It's called temptation. Um, so temptation is like the entry level. Okay. This is how most demons get us. Most people don't need to be possessed because we fall into temptation like that. Like it's like we are all so susceptible to it. It's easy. Uh, and so that's why most of us don't experience what's beyond this. Um, the three general categories are uh, temptation, oppression, and possession. So temptation is that, into, that kind of beginning influence of the enemy. Most of us fall prey to it. Oppression is a little more intense where you experience serious spiritual warfare. You may even feel like you have something attached to you or trying to uh, provoke you to evil or an evil presence kind of following you or in your house or something like that. And then possession, obviously we know what that is. Uh, and then they manifest in different ways. So um, what are the other ones? Obsession uh, is kind of a form of oppression where it's almost like a fascination with evil and demonic activity or demonic nature, you know, things like that. Um, in, uh, infestation with a possession of a place or an object where there's, uh, you know, so like severe, uh, like evil hauntings are usually an infestation of an object or a home. And evil spirits can attach themselves to a lot of these occult things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, stuff like that. Um, and then integration was the other one which I mentioned. So I think that's all of them. Yeah. A lot of demon talk tonight. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's kind of just been like whatever, it's probably fine. Yeah. Like, lessons, but yes. So that, and then also, what you recommend to do if ever you're exposed, like watching a show like Riverdale, like you said, sure. Cards, like what you should do for the next step. Yes. Like Great questions. Great questions to summarize with. This is awesome. Um, okay. So, uh, a little bit on the Harry Potter, and then what to do if you've been exposed to these things or to protect yourself, too. So, um, a lot of the, uh, so here, here's what I'll say. There is a lot out there from exorcists about the nature of demons. And they say these things that they experience in exorcisms as if they are fact. And the problem is, demons 
are lying liars who lie. And the people who talk to them the most don't often realize that demons will tell exorcist things that are not true. And they say stuff that's a little extreme or a little out there that needs to be vetted through several of these people and through the church to discern if it's accurate or not. Because the devil is the father of lies. So we have to be sure of the fact that this is real. Okay? So even if you hear like an exorcist talking about the true nature of evil and demons, take that with a grain of salt. Okay? Because they're often relying on their own personal experience of this. And it's just anecdotal and what they've experienced, and they're not taking into account the fact, like, is this accurate information that you heard directly from these demons and exorcisms? Because they lie. They try and appeal to shock value and make you more afraid of them than you should be. Um, so that's, uh, that's the grain of salt part. When it comes to Harry Potter, again, Harry Potter involves magic and spells, just like Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, all these other things that are not um, often associated with the occult by extremists and have all of the same elements. The only link that was at one time uh, put forth as to why this is evil was that there was someone, I think they were uh, a self-proclaimed demonologist, saying that there was a, a hidden document in the Vatican archives that they saw that had Latin names for demons that matched the names of the spells in Harry Potter. That has never been verified. And if you read Harry Potter, and if you look at the language of this, they all use Latin roots. And so they're obviously going to share Latin names. And if demons pre predominantly interact in the language of Latin in exorcisms, there's going to be some similarities. But they weren't direct. They weren't exactly the same. And it was a gross generalization. That document was never found. It's not real. Um, but there, you can find online some people trying to make these similarities. That's where a lot of this comes from associated with Harry Potter in particular, was that one person's claim that was never verified, and then all these exorcists and people in that community ran with it, and then this is evil, okay? So, um, but it's important to guard your heart. So there are some people who can read Harry Potter, most people, I think, and be totally fine. Some people will get too into it, and they will try and act these things as if they are real and open themselves up to spiritual realities to kind of pray for or ask from nature or out there for the gift of magic. And that can be dangerous. In the same way, someone could do the same thing with Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia. That can be dangerous. So I think just because Harry Potter presents it in a way that's maybe a little darker is why it's more associated with the evil than the others are. Um, but I mean, look at Sauron. So I don't think that's fair either. So, um, so anyway, I would say that that's my take on it and what I've, I've heard from the research that's been done on it. I don't think it's innately dangerous. Um, a Ouija board is not innately dangerous. It's not. It's a board game. But because of the nature of how you use it is what makes it dangerous, right? Tarot cards were originally designed to be playing cards for gambling and games. They became spiritualized to do readings, and because of how you use it and then open yourself up to spiritual things, then they become dangerous, Okay? So it's about how you use something, how you're opening your, these doors up to uh, the demonic or the divine uh, or the, the supernatural that is evil. Uh, and then evil spirits become attached to a lot of these things. So now there probably are many Ouija boards out there that are infested with these evil spirits. But innately, they weren't initially. Okay? So it's about how you use these things. So if you've been exposed or if you want to protect yourself, uh, there's some simple things that you can do. First and foremost, pray the name of Jesus, as the Catechism says. It's the only name that contains the power that it signifies. So if you ever feel in a moment that you're being oppressed, attacked, experiencing spiritual warfare, pray out loud the name of Jesus. Okay? Uh, it's debated in uh, kind of demonological circles, but it's mostly believed and agreed upon. Demons cannot read your mind. They cannot read your thoughts. They can infer very much that you're thinking of what you might do because they're hyper-intellectual, but they cannot directly read your mind. So if you're praying things in your head, they will not hear them. And so if they are being asked to flee in the name of Jesus in your mind, that's going to do nothing for them. Okay? Um, demons are also very legalistic. Uh, if you're into kind of fantasy, they are lawful evil. And so they follow the rules because they're created by a lawful, uh, good, and loving creator, but they rebelled. But they're still bound by the rules of creation. So uh, they have to flee in the name of the creator. So to command them, I uh, bind and renounce you, be gone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I usually say the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't say Jesus because even though Jesus has that power, a lot of other people are named Jesus. And I could rationalize a demon being like, well, what Jesus do you mean? I don't have to leave, you know? So like, be specific, 
do it out loud, use the power of the name of Jesus. And those are basically things called deliverance prayers. You have the power and the authority to do that over yourself, over your spouse, and over your children. You could argue also over your immediate family, but that would mostly apply from elders down. But you could, there is maybe a biblical precedent to do that for your family because of how God creates the domestic church in a family unit. But praying that over people, you can pray over people and ask God to deliver them, but we don't have the power to deliver others or to bless them in any way. It's God who does that. So God can use that language if we use it, uh, but it's usually you want to ask them to invoke that language. Like I ask that God bind and renounce these evil spirits, these demons from my life in his, in his name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's simply what you can do. If it's more intense than that, uh, visit your local church, talk to a priest. There is a dedicated exorcist in every diocese. Um, there's a very intense interview process. If you think you've been exposed to a demon or you are possessed, to ensure it's not something like a mental illness, you go through a physical, a psychiatric evaluation. They take into account drug uh, abuse, alcoholism, uh, past abuse of any substances, things that might be altering your state of mind at that time. And only once you go through all of that, do they assess, is there actually something spiritual here? And then a major exorcism could take place. So the church has the authority and the ministry to do these things, but we have the ability by virtue of being baptized to call on the name of Jesus to deliver us from the influence of evil. So use that, use it over yourself out loud every day, not scrupulously, but pray the St. Michael prayer, ask your guardian angel to protect you, invoke the name of Jesus, be gone in the name of Jesus. If you feel anything, be gone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you need. Say it out loud. There's power in the name of Jesus and they cannot help but flee. Demons are weak, puny, terrible, stupid, awful creatures that have nothing on the Lord. And I'm not afraid to say that because I know it's true. So you shouldn't be afraid of them either. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Your name has power. Your name is good and holy and true. And we pray, Lord, um, by the authority that you have, by virtue of your name, that you would drive any influence of evil, any attachment to evil from all of our lives, that you would break every chain, that you would bind and renounce and rebuke all of those things from our lives. In your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm so sorry.